the FT. Welcome to a special podcast in conjunction with House and Home in the Weekend FT. I'm Clive Cookson, the FT science editor. Almost a month ago, U.S. astronomers, working with a new radio telescope at the South Pole called BICEP, announced a remarkable discovery. They had detected gravitational waves, ripples in the fabric of space, originating from the birth of our universe. These faint waves are the strongest evidence so far for the theory of cosmic inflation, the hyper-rapid expansion that followed the Big Bang. This discovery was joyful news for Andrei Linder, the Russian émigré cosmologist who had played a key role in developing inflation theory in the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 80s. I spoke to Professor Linder by phone at his home in Stanford University, California, where he has been based since 1990. First, I asked him to describe the significance of the bicep discovery. Well, you know, a long time ago, people have found in 65, in fact, uh, cosmic microwave background radiation, which comes to us from all parts of the sky. And people at first did not know what it is. But then later they recognized that this is like an echo of the Big Bang. There is some very, very non-energetic photons coming to us, light microwaves coming to us from all parts of the sky, and these photons apparently have been produced very close to the beginning of the evolution of our universe. We knew that uh, this radiation is very non-energetic, we knew that it is very uniform, we looked at all parts of the sky and we have seen that this radiation is everywhere the same, and whenever we look, uh, we measure its energy, which is characterized by its temperature, and it's temperature was very, very cold, like 2.7 Kelvin, very, very small. And then, many years later, people found that one of the parts of the sky is a little bit warmer, another part of the sky is a little bit colder. What appears is that our Earth is moving with respect to the rest of the universe, and when it hits the photons coming from one part of the sky, which hit the Earth head-on, then this other part of the sky seemed a little bit warmer. How much warmer? 10 to the minus 3, so one thousandth of a Kelvin, they yes. measured it. They understood the origin and they subtracted it from their data because, well, okay, so we're moving with respect to the universe. What a big deal. Then they start looking at different parts of the sky, even with greater precision, and they have found that Actually, in all directions, there are some small non-uniformities at the level of 10 to the minus 5. So it's one hundredth of a thousandth of a Kelvin. That's just science fiction that they were able to do it. This was done by Kobe satellite, and people already got Nobel Prizes for that. Just like those who discovered the uh, CMB in 65 also got Nobel Prizes. Then other experiments, WMAP satellite in particular, Planck satellite, they've seen finer and finer structure of these tiny spots in the sky, slightly larger temperature, slightly smaller temperature, and of course why anybody would care. Well, according to inflationary theory, which I will mention to you later, these are the images of quantum fluctuations which have been produced 
very close to the moment of creation of the universe. Approximately one billions of a billions of a billions of a millions of a second after the moment of creation of the universe. Could you explain what the quantum fluctuations would have been? Well, quantum mechanics tells you that you cannot just say that the empty space is empty because there is uncertainty relation. Uncertainty relation tells that if you have only this amount of time, then you can say that there is nothing there only with that amount of accuracy. And this means that in the vacuum, there are always, when you look at it under the microscope and using some stroboscopic device, send the light there momentarily, what you are going to see at small distances, you will see vacuum kind of boiling. But then over the large human time intervals, all of this is averaged out and you do not see much, you just see empty space. But in the early universe, times were short and the universe was expanding fast. So this fast expansion took with it this quantum fluctuation, blown them over the size comparable to the size of our sky. And then this is, according to what we think, is the way how galaxies have been formed. Our galaxies are children of these quantum fluctuations. And this is what these satellites were seeing. They were seeing imprints of these quantum fluctuations on the sky. And the best theory which uh, explained all of this, including the overall uniformity of this cosmic microwave ground radiation, was inflationary cosmology. But people wanted to test this theory even better And there was one prediction of inflationary cosmology which was so subtle, so delicate, and so hard to reproduce by other means that many people say, oh, if we will find it, then we would really believe that inflationary theory of uh, the origin of the universe is really correct. For me, this would be not so necessary because we have so many other evidences in favor of this theory but it would never hurt to get an extra one, especially such a powerful. And so these powerful would be these tiny, tiny spots on the sky, which is hard to find anyway. They would also have some tiny fluctuations of polarization of light coming from them. And what I mean by polarization, well, you know, if you go to 3D movie, one of your eyes see one image, another sees another image, and that's because your glasses are arranged in such a way that some of the type of the light comes to your eye, to the right eye, and some to the left, and then your brain converts these together and you have three-dimensional image. So they used a device which is similar to that to see only one type of light with certain, how they say, polarization, never mind what it means. So they found these perturbations, these tiny fluctuations, this polarization of these tiny fluctuations, predicted by inflationary theory. And this polarization is actually an indication that gravitational waves, the perturbation of space-time itself, have been produced during inflationary stage of the evolution of the universe. Perturbations of space and time, gravitational waves, they are predicted by general theory of relativity by Einstein, but they have never been seen by anybody. There were some indirect evidences. This is one of the most spectacular predictions of general theory of relativity. Now we see it on the sky imprinted on the largest ever 
photographic plate, which is our sky. Now, people will want to know how your theory of inflationary cosmology differs from the simple Big Bang, because people who have an image of a Big Bang, a false image, but an image of something of the greatest possible explosion, expansion, they might think that that is similar to your inflationary theory. Can you try and explain what cosmic inflation adds or how it differs from Big Bang theory? Big Bang, it was a cosmic explosion and everything flies away as if it were some kind of terrorist act which created the whole our universe. Yes. Or you may think it in a different terms. But it was very hard to imagine why this bank was so big. Just to give you some numbers, if you want to explain origin of all matter in the universe, you would need to assume that at some moment, very, very far from us in the beginning, just very close to the origin of the universe, uh, somebody gave the universe 10 to the degree 80 tons of high-tech explosive. 10 to the degree 80, which means like approximately 1 billion of a 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 million of tons of high-tech explosive. And then it was all compressed to the size approximately 1 millimeter, and then it was all ignited simultaneously from all of its sides, and then it was exploded. It's weird uh, how that. There was no universe, and suddenly you have this huge amount of matter. Who gave this? And of course you say, okay, God did it, because it's a big miracle how to get this suddenly all of this mass, all of this energy, and explode it. So God exploded it. This is, however, too easy way out. Scientists are trying to do something better than that. So what we found, that there is a way to simplify this work. We may start with less than one milligram of matter, or maybe even literally from nothing. And then all the universe appears as a result of the process which is called inflation. This is a bit tricky process. If anybody would uh, explain, try to uh, describe it uh, to me maybe 35 years ago, I would answer that, look, this is weird, Uh, go home, and tomorrow when you're not drunk, come to me and tell me the story again. (laughs) But... I am telling this story already for more than 30 years, so I got used to it. But nevertheless, it's really, at first glance, it looks almost like cheating. So I can explain you the basics. So think about first the Big Bang. Think about box filled with a thousand of candies. So you have box one meter size in all directions, and a thousand of candies are there. Now, let's stretch the box ten times. So it's now a cube 10 meters in all directions. So its volume actually is 10 by 10 by 10. Its volume have grown a thousand times, right? Yes. It has the same thousand candies inside. But now these candies are uh, in a much greater volume. So density of candies, the number of candies per cubic meter becomes, uh, well, thousand times smaller. So... Einstein equations describing expansion of the universe tell us that the speed of its expansion is proportional to the density. The greater density, as it was in the Big Bang, the faster is expansion. But when the universe expands, density of candies, or if you wish, of elementary particles of normal matter in the universe, 
rapidly become small and small and small, and therefore expansion rapidly slows down. So what started like a big explosion suddenly become less big and less fast, and the universe slows down, and that's make it very difficult to explain why the universe is so large. But now uh, here will be this thing that will look like a, a cheating. Suppose you have a box, but filled not with candies, but now watch me, with something which looks like vacuum, so there is nothing there, but this vacuum would have energy density. Yes. So this would seem like a very weird thing, but I already told you that vacuum may not be absolutely necessary because of these quantum fluctuations. Then there are some well fields which uh, are not visible, and they sometimes act almost like vacuum. I, I, I do not want to make your life miserable. I'm just saying that suppose that you have something which has energy, which, however, in all other respects, look like empty vacuum state. Yes. And that is not a joke. That is something which people have considered for quite a long time. Now, suppose you have this box of heavy nothing, and then it expands 10 times. So you ask, what is inside? Oh, nothing. Uh, what is the energy density of nothing? Oh, the same as it was before, because it is nothing. So now, if you had originally some energy density of nothing, and the box with nothing expanded, nothing happens. You have still the same energy density. But just wait. Your box now is 10 times larger, so volume is 1,000 times larger. So if you have the same energy density of vacuum, same property of vacuum, but the volume is 1,000 times more, then actually the total energy is a thousand times greater. So suddenly you create lots of energy from nothing. And it looks like cheating. It actually is not. There is well, a rather complicated interplay between general theory of relativity, particle physics, which actually allows all of this to happen. And this was a strange explanation which was pushed forward by Alan Guth, from MIT, or at that time he was actually at Stanford, and it was called inflationary scenario. He wanted to use it for explaining the properties of our universe, like explaining why the Big Bang is really big, and why the universe is so uniform, and why parallel lines do not intersect, and all of these kind of things, and everybody were very excited. But then he found, and that was in uh, 1980, then he found that it does not quite work because uh, later you need to get rid out of this vacuum. You need to get normal matter. And this vacuum, when it starts decaying, the universe becomes non-uniform, ugly, and as a result, we do not get the universe the way we see it. So this was a scenario which now is called old inflation. Yes. And he have written in his paper that, sorry, but it does not quite work, but we should all try, maybe we will uh, make it work. And then a year later, he have written a long, long paper, 100 pages, proving that it's impossible to improve this scenario. Uh, but there was a miscommunication between Russia and U.S., so all preprints from U.S. were coming to Russia during several months. So I received this preprint after already improved his scenario, and that was something which I called new inflationary scenario. But this version of his theory did not quite work either, and a year later, it was discarded, 
And then in 83, I proposed something which is called chaotic inflation. And it was very, very simple. It was really simple. There was no vacuum-like state necessary. You need some special kind of field of the type of a Higgs field, which was recently discovered at LHC. Uh, and under certain conditions, um, even in very simple theories of that kind, you will have exponentially fast expansion of the universe, and then you solve all problems which you could not solve otherwise. And this is exactly the version of the theory which predicted uh, 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 this, uh, gravitational waves with the amplitude which was discovered by BICEP2. That's why, for me personally, this was a day of celebration. That is, assuming that interpretation of the experimental data is right. Experiment is extremely complicated. Its results do not quite match with the results of other experiments which have been made before, but then these other experiments did not have this fantastic sensitivity of what this BICEP2 experiment had. So everybody is now trying to understand what is going on. It may be a little bit too early to make a final judgment, but the group of BICEP experiment is very strong. They are very good professionals. I was present at their talk. It was spectacular. It was really spectacular what they did, and they continue their work. So hopefully in a few months they will have additional data which would uh, allow to establish the results with greater accuracy. And then uh, other people will not sleep as well. There are many other experiments which are trying to catch up. And so hopefully within several months to maybe one or two years, we will really know what is going on there on Sky. And if their data will be confirmed, I'm trying to be agnostic. I'm trying to be cold-blooded. Yes. It's very, very hard exercise. Everything is just boiling inside me from this happiness of discovery, but I'm trying to be cold-blooded and take any possibility into account and see what does it mean. If the experiment is wrong, does it mean that inflationary theory is not right? No, it does not, because it had so many other confirmations already. This was possible, this was like a gift. In many theories, the level of these gravitational waves would not be as much as what they have discovered. So no, it would not disprove if they did not find it. But if the discovery is real, then this is just spectacular. And this is spectacular not only for inflation, but for general theory of relativity in general. And also, we will know exactly the energy density of the universe at the moment when this process happened. We will learn something not only about classical theory of gravity, but about quantum theory of gravity. So this is immense. If this is right, this is as significant or even more significant than the recent discovery of Higgs boson at LHC. Okay, well, that is really exciting. One of the aspects of cosmic inflation that intrigues people most is the way it implies the multiverse, that our universe is part of a large number, possibly an infinite number of universes, some of which have the same laws of physics as ours, others may have different laws of physics. Can you explain what the link is between your theory and this appealing idea of the multiverse? So Einstein wanted to explain why the universe is as uniform as it is. By uniformity, I mean if you look to the right, 
and as far as you can, and then you use the most powerful telescopes and use them to the best of ability, we will see the universe at a distance which is equal to speed of light multiplied by the age of the universe. Actually, a little bit even further than that, but this is a subtlety which I will skip at the moment. So I look to the right, I look to the left, I see approximately the same. And then the question is, so why? Why approximately the same? Inflationary theory explains it. Einstein thought there is no explanation, but probably there is something like a principle which forbids the universe to be grossly non-uniform. And he called it cosmological principle. So according to cosmological principle, everything, everywhere must have the same properties. And that's what we see, approximately. We see also far away to the right of us, far away to the left of us, Electrons have the same mass and the same charge. So we used to believe that the law of physics is everywhere the same uh, around us. Now, inflation explains why. The universe takes one tiny speck of space, size smaller than millimeter, actually much smaller than millimeter, like closer to 10 to the minus 30 of a millimeter. So it's like a billions of a billions of a billions of a millimeter, even less, and then stretches it to the size which is much, much larger than everything that we can see right now. So if you start with some area, some small piece of space, let's call it white. It has some particular properties. Then this whiteness will spread to all part of our universe that we can see. We look to the right of us, we look to the left of us, we see, oh, our universe is everywhere white. I'm just using this white to show that it is the same everywhere. So now, Think about football. You have a football which has white area, black area, white area, black area. Okay? Yes. So now we imagine that you have inflation of a football. Then black area also becomes exponentially large. And those people or whoever can live there look around. They found that as long as far as they can see, universe is everywhere black. And they try to then explain we need to construct a theory which allows only black universes because that what we see around we see everywhere blackness so there will be two groups of scientists those who were born in black and they will try to explain why only black is possible and those who will live in white and they will say uh, try to explain why only white is possible that's what einstein was trying to do he was trying to find explanation that only uh, the theory which describe our part of the universe is logically possible, and all other possibilities just lo logically impossible. Now, inflation solved the problem of explaining why everything is uniform, but then it allows also a possibility that different parts of the universe are also uniform but completely different. There are some white, there are some black, there are some blues, there are some yellow. And by this, I mean different properties of our vacuum state, yes. different laws of physics operating there, different types of galaxies. In our part of the universe, electron is very small, small mass, I mean. Uh, in other parts of the universe, electron can be very, very heavy. In some others, electron may not even exist. And it's not a joke. This is what physicists are considering seriously. But previously, before inflation, they thought that it really does not matter because one way or another, there must be some reason why the universe must be in this state with light electron. 
And now we see that there is no reason to insist on it. And then we continued working on it and working, and step by step, we found that even if I start with white universe, these quantum fluctuations which produce galaxies, they produce islands of blackness. And then these islands exponentially grow and become huge black universes. And then inside of these islands of blackness, there will be islands of redness and blueness and everything else. So even if you start with a universe which is everywhere the same, it will by itself split into areas, exponentially large areas, living in each of which you will have no idea about anything else, any others. And they will have all colors which are permitted by general law of physics underlying evolution of the universe. So for a while we thought, who cares, maybe there are only two possibilities for the universe, maybe three. But then, 11 years ago, here at Stanford, we've studied string theory, and we have found that string theory allows, in a sense, many different colors, many different properties of vacuum states of our universe. How many? It is given by the number which was estimated by 10 to the degree 500. So it's immense number of the universes. We were not the first to give these huge numbers. There were many other people who were working on it. But in our case, we were able at least to slightly more rigorously realize this possibility. And then other people have calculated the number more accurately. So these numbers are huge, and this means that if you have inflation and string theory, then the universe becomes multicolored. Many, many different possibilities are possible everywhere. We would think originally that this is something exotic, because inflation looks exotic. String theory, who knows? But inflation is the best theory of cosmology which is presently available. We do not know for sure that it is true, but it looks increasingly probable that this is the right theory of creation of the universe. And then string theory, many people think that this is the best theory or describing fundamental interactions. So you bring these two theories uh, together, and you have a multiverse. That's why uh, many people are increasingly more and more believing into this concept. Do you think it can ever be proved within your lifetime or my lifetime that we have a multiverse? I think that, uh, first of all, I will reverse the question. Can you really in your lifetime prove that this is a universe? Uni means you have just white universe, no black universes. Because this is what people thought. Uh, they look to the right, they look to the left, they see evidence of the universe. I'm now telling you that inflation discards this evidence because it does not tell you anything. The, the fact that you have the same mass of the electron everywhere, you do not have any experimental evidence in favor of the old picture. No. Uh, okay, because, because if there are black areas, they are far away, you do not see them, so you cannot disprove the concept of the multiverse. That's the first thing. Now, second thing, why would you think uh, that the concept of universe is more natural? Oh, yeah, because we look through a window and we see the same universe. So that, that's why. But if you look at the people at the street, everybody wears uh, clothes of different color. Why uh, multiplicity seem to be forbidden? It is not. It's everywhere. 
We have one theory of electromagnetic interactions, mm. which describes all colors surrounding us. Green and yellow and blue, they're all parts of the spectrum, and nobody insists that only blue light is possible. So the insistence that we have just one universe, this is actually a statement which needs to be proven. But there is something else in it, and there's something else is there are some strange properties of our world. Strange properties like, for example, this mass of the electron, which I mentioned to you. It is 2,000 times smaller than mass of the proton. You look at it and say, why it is 2,000 times smaller? We have no idea. It looks strange. But if it were 10 times more or 10 times smaller, life as we know it would not be able to exist here. You look at the proton mass and neutron mass. These masses of proton and neutron, they almost coincide with accuracy better than 1%. Why is it so? Why these masses are so exactly fine-tuned? Well, no idea. But if the proton and neutron, they would be different in mass by 1% in either direction. Either one of them is bigger than another, but then this extra percent, or otherwise, life as we know it would be impossible. If energy of empty space which surround us would be, well, 100 times greater than it is now, and now it is absolutely minuscule, yes. then expansion of the universe will tear uh, uh, our galaxies apart, and life as we know it would be impossible. And if energy of our vacuum state would be large and negative, then our universe would have collapsed already many, many billion years ago, and life of our type would be impossible. So there are strange coincidences which link properties of many parameters of our universe to one property that we can live there. And now this looks very, very metaphysical, as if God have created the universe for the benefit of some particular kind of monkey. This looks very presumptuous and also kind of hard to achieve it, uh, again brings us to theology. Yes. Now, what multiverse tells you, that universe by itself, once it starts inflating, it produces itself in all of its possible types, in all of its possible colors. There are some parts of the universe where electrons are much heavier, and we cannot live there. Somebody else can live there, but not we. And there are some parts of the universe where proton and neutron have very different masses. We cannot live there, but somebody else may live there. And there are some other parts of the universe where vacuum energy is different from what is around us. So we would be unable to live there, but somebody else probably could. So what happens is that think about the universe multiverse as a set of countries. There are some countries or some parts of the Earth where we can live, and there are some others where we cannot. So we look around ourselves, we see properties of our country are consistent with our own properties. Yes. And you say, okay, that's nothing special. I would be unable to live inside water, but dolphins can, so who cares? But I know that I live on the dry land because my properties I require this air surrounding me, I cannot breathe in water. My properties are aligned with the properties of the place where I live. So there is nothing special about it. It's nothing special that I am surrounded by air 
because if I would be surrounded by water, I would be unable to breathe. So now this becomes very simple. I know why I'm here. This is called entropic principle. This entropic principle makes sense only if you have a possibility to try. If there are some different parts of the universe with different properties, it requires multiverse. This means that smallness of the electron mass, equality of proton mass to neutron mass, smallness of the cosmological constant, which is vacuum energy, and many other coincidences, they are experimental evidences in favor of the multiverse. Okay, thank you. That has convinced me. Now, Andre, <laughs> let's move on to your, to your own life. T- tell us, you started thinking about all this while you were working in the old Soviet Union in the 1970s and 80s, and you came out to the West in about 1990. What made you leave what was then the Soviet Union? Russia now? Um, Well, uh, life in Russia, scientifically, was uh, very good. Uh, I was working in Lebedev Physical Institute in Moscow, and this was a wonderful scientific organization with great uh, scientific tradition. Uh, This was the same uh, institute where academician Ginsburg was working, uh, who later got his Nobel Prize for Physics, uh, the same uh, theory group where Andrei Sakharov was working. So uh, there were two uh, Andreis in theory division, Andrei Dmitrievich Sakharov. Dmitrievich means his father was Dmitri. And Andrei Dmitrievich Lindy, which was me, because uh, my father was also Dmitri. So there was even a joke that if you uh, see two Andrei Dmitrievich in the corridor and it looks like four, this means that you're drunk. <laughs> So um, uh, it, it was a fantastic organization, very, very good people. On the other hand, when I wanted to communicate with our colleagues abroad, it was a headache because, for example, when I sent a letter uh, to my colleagues in the U.S. and in England, I must get several signatures which would permit me to send a letter. When I sent a paper uh, to physics letters or to other journal abroad, then I would need to spend maybe two or three months getting a permission to send it abroad. When I want to go to conferences in England, in Italy, in whatever place, I would need to go through a very complicated procedure. So this uh, was one of the things which hampered our work, which make it, made it much more difficult. Our communication with our colleagues much more complicated. And on top of it, well, think about living in the theory department, uh, which contained uh, such people like Andrei Dmitrievich Sakharov. We were under the microscope all of this time. What we were doing, and uh, we were visiting Sakharov when he was in exile in Gorky. Uh, it was not a nice feeling in general. Yes. Uh, Now, uh, dominant feeling, nevertheless, was science is great, it's great to work there. Uh, But then there was this perestroika, and at some moment they suddenly allowed families to travel uh, together. Uh, Me and my wife, Renata Kalash, who was also a professor of physics at Liberty Physical Institute, uh, both of us, together with uh, our children, we left to CERN for one year. 
And for a while, we did not re, uh, well quite understood the life there. We were in well, we were in broad, uh, broad traveling separately for a few days, for a week, for two weeks, but never for a year. So we were living there. And then people at CERN in Geneva, they made an offer for me to stay there permanently. Then somebody else offered my wife uh, some permanent position uh, in some institution in France. And then we received a message from uh, Stanford University uh, suggesting us to take two permanent positions, uh, professor positions at Stanford. We were totally unprepared to all of this. My wife asked the person sitting near her near a computer when she received the offer from Stanford. She asked, and what is this Stanford place? Is it any good? Because we <laughs> did not really know much. Uh, this was not our intention. Our intention was we were going to return back to Moscow. We knew that we were going to return back to Moscow in a year. Mm. Uh, but uh, then these colleagues of her answered, do you seriously consider moving into this cultural desert and then in the same breath he continued but many people would die to get an offer like that and that means especially two offers that is practically never uh, and well we ended up here at stanford and i must attest that this is not in the slightest a cultural desert it's a very alive place with great people, and that was actually the reason why we came here, because the people here have the same mentality as was the uh, mentality of our colleagues at Lebedev Physical Institute. They love physics equally uh, well strong. They are equally democratic. They live like a one big family, and it's quite enjoyable to talk physics with all of them. So from the point of view of physics, it's a very nice place. From the point of view of contact with all of our colleagues everywhere around the world, it allows us to do it practically instantly. So it has some advantages to what uh, we had before. Uh, we need to teach here. That is, from my perspective, a little bit of a disadvantage because we never did it, and this takes time. It takes time from our work. It takes time from our research. This is what we want to do most of all. On the other hand, it's like gymnastics. You may not like to exercise on your well, treadmill or whatever, but uh, you need to do it because otherwise uh, you become weak. And if you are teaching, you, whether you want it or not, you are learning some other branches of physics. So in some respect, it's also useful, even though you may not like it. But this place is fantastic, and I enjoy doing physics here. Do you live close to the campus? Where do you actually, Where's your I home? I live on campus. On campus is that? Yeah, is it's that a privilege? Professor's ghetto. Yes. <laughs> what do you think of the Californian lifestyle beyond science? Um, you know what? I would have trouble answering because I've never experienced this California style. Uh, uh, like, for example, people ask me, so how often do you go to San Francisco? And I say, oh, my God, but this is 40 miles or something like that. And to drive here, no, why do I need so? I have all my world in the screen of my computer around, and this is my work. And uh, I am surrounded by my colleagues, which are intellectually great people and, um, uh, well, in many other respects. So I have full my life here. 
I do not know about the whole California. Yes. That is one strange thing about United States. Uh, if you want to find something really bad there, you find it in abundance. If you want to find here something really good, you find it in abundance. So then it's essentially a matter of your choice or luck. If you find yourself surrounded by great people, you enjoy it, and this becomes the part of your culture. And then these people around, they are not lazy, they are not laying on the sun and enjoying weather. They are working like everybody else, like those who live on the West Coast and the East Coast and in Europe. They really like what they're doing. So this is our culture. This is not necessarily California culture. Also, in a sense, uh, we are lucky to be surrounded by Silicon Valley, which is also non-typical because all of these young people here, they are like crazy. They know that this is time for their life. They are inventing new computers, new technology, new programs. And all of them know that everything depends on their own creativity, which makes all of this place surrounding us boiling with energy. So, yeah, this is a very interesting environment. But I would not tell anything about California in general. Okay. And how much contact do you have with your former colleagues in Russia? Uh, For a long time, I was uh, coming to my own institute uh, every year giving talks there. We like each other. We do respect each other. I hope they continue respecting me. And I like them a lot because they are uh, really very decent and very good people, those who stay there. The contact lately become a little bit smaller because, well, of natural process of aging, both of my friends and mine. I'm coming to Moscow every year, uh, spending there at least a couple of weeks or maybe sometimes twice. Because my mother and my brother, they still live there. My mother right now is 94, and she was a professor of physics there. She was teaching physics until age 86 in Moscow State University. My brother is a professor of psychology. So, yeah, life in Russia continues. It's interesting to come there. And when I come, I always call to my friends, and we talk, and we sometimes meet, and we discuss physics, and we discuss life. So, yes, contact is well and alive. Great. Well, I think we're going to have to stop there. You, I'm sure, need to get going. But thank you so much, Andre. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I hope that the scientific news over the next year finally confirms what what you hope it will. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks a lot. Thanks. To see my article about Andre Linder in the Expat Lives section of House and Home, visit ft.com forward slash multiverse. This podcast version of the interview was produced by John Byrne Murdoch and Martin Staber. Many thanks for listening. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
The latest episode of the Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of the Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.